Would you stand as we read God's Word today? This is 2 Samuel 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the kings were prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we do once more come before you in prayer and ask for your guidance as we read your word, study it this morning, apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to understand what it was about this situation that led to judgment and help us to understand how we can avoid similar types of things not only in our lives, but understand a little bit more about you, your character, and your governance over all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been steadily working our way through the books of First and Second Samuel for the past year and a half, and we arrive here at the end of Second Samuel. And you'll remember that the high point of these two books was reached in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel where God made a covenant from David. And from there, the remainder of 2 Samuel is a recounting of David's sins. And we've, we've noted the irony of that, right? This great high point, God making a covenant for an everlasting dynasty to come from David. And then chapter after chapter of the sins of David, of his family... For the purpose of showing that despite man's failure, God is faithful to his covenant promises. And we've looked at a few examples of those sins. We saw the ones with Uriah and Bathsheba. We saw Absalom's rebellion. We've seen more and more. And today we see this. The taking of a census, probably the most controversial chapter in in 2 Samuel, maybe even both books, 1 and 2 Samuel. And and the controversy is raised there in verse 1, I think, when we read 
that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them. Well, maybe you were just reading with me at first and we skipped on past that and you didn't notice it, but put together that comment with verse 10 where it says that what David is moved to do or incited to do by the Lord is regarded by him the Lord, as sin. And so verses 11 through 18 then record God's great judgment against that sin, and putting it together, it seems, on first glance, that God moved or incited David to sin. How do we reconcile that? Well, let's complicate the matter just a little bit. Look at this section here in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. 2 Samuel 24, 1 says that God incited David. 1 Chronicles 21, 1 says that Satan incited David can both be true. And the answer is yes, they can. But in order to understand how that can be true, look at the passage right below that, 1 Kings 22, a very similar and interesting passage as well, where Micaiah says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead. And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out, and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him. You shall succeed, go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So maybe some of you forgot that that verse even exists in the Bible. And you look at that and you say, wow, that is an interesting passage. It's one in which we see a spirit coming before the Lord's throne, offering to inspire Ahab's false prophets to lie concerning an upcoming battle, and it may even remind you of the book of Job, right? Where Satan comes before God's throne and accuses God of partiality, and he offers to afflict Job as a test. Well, in this first Kings passage, God gives permission to the Spirit to lie through the prophets just as he gives Satan permission to afflict Job, and notice what is said about God. Verse 23 says, The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these, your prophets. Why does Micaiah say that? He says it because God is sovereign over all things. There is nothing that can happen that God does not ordain and permit. And thus, for a lying spirit to influence the prophets of Ahab... While it is not directly God's doing yet, it was ordained and permitted to happen, and thus God is said to have done it. 
when Satan afflicts Job, Job recognizes that it's God that's ultimately responsible. The Bible tells us that God governs the universe. Not only inanimate creation, but all the actions of his creatures, both men and animals. He is called in First Chronicles the ruler of all things. And in Matthew 10, the one apart from whose will not even a sparrow can fall to the ground. Jeremiah asks in Lamentations 3, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord does not decree it? Daniel says God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one could hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he wishes. So no one and no thing can act outside of God's sovereign will or against it. Centuries ago, Augustine once said, nothing therefore happens unless the omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. End of quote. Nothing is too large to escape God's governing hand and that is why Jesus tells us that God cares about the big things of nations but even also a concern for a sparrow. And as God's rule is invincible and he cannot be challenged, so are his ways incomprehensible. Isaiah would write that God's ways are higher than our ways. His judgments are unsearchable. His paths beyond tracing out. But we often do question it, don't we? Because we want to search out those ways. We want to understand and so we begin to question, like Job, we, we wonder about God's hand in things. We're happy to credit, now aren't we, we're always happy to credit God with good things, with his providential hand in landing us a good job or helping us find a house or blessing us with things in our lives, but we hesitate to think that God could have permitted that car accident that leads us to being in a hospital for a month. So let me ask you a question. Can you really accept the idea that some things happen, that anything happens for no reason whatsoever? That there is such a thing as random chance in the universe that is outside of God's control? There are many, many people, I'd say most people, when it comes down to it, believe some version of that. One Jewish rabbi has written that he can't believe that an earthquake that kills thousands of innocent victims without reason would be an act of God. He says it is an act of nature, and nature is morally blind without values. It just churns along, following its own laws and not caring who or what gets in the way. And that's not only the majority attitude of most today, it's, it's the majority attitude, I would think, of most in the past. And it was the response of Job's friends. It's the attitude of modern man who speaks of fate and random chance and luck. And even Christians think this way. Accepting the notion that God 
is sovereign, in the, at least in some limited sense, but believing that he chooses not to exercise that sovereignty in the daily affairs of our lives. One Christian writer puts it, we know that God is sovereign, but we also know that in his sovereignty he has placed us in a world of sin and suffering from which we have no immunity. And he goes on to say, God's love for us does not place us in a protected position. That's an interesting statement. One that I'm troubled by. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. The writer I quoted seems to think that God just kind of puts us in this world and lets things go and then he welcomes us at the end and maybe intervenes in some of the big moments. That's not what I hear from Jesus. God knows the hairs on the ever-decreasing number of hairs on my head. Amen. Amen. Todd, you have more hair than I do. (laughs) Of course you can say that. According to Jesus, God is not only sovereign over the big things in life like the cross, but he is sovereign over the very minute events, even the life and death of an almost worthless sparrow. That's the point of of Jesus' metaphor. If God exercises his will with regard to sparrows, with regard to lilies in the field, most certainly he exercises it with regard to his children. And while it is certainly true that God's love for us does not guarantee a life free from pain, it is also true that every, all occasions of pain and sorrow, and even evil, are under the absolute control of God. If he can control the circumstances of the sparrow, how much more does he control the circumstances that affect us? And I know the temptation right now is to say, horrible. Horrible that God would allow me to suffer senseless pain and trial and tragedy or would allow evil to exist and sometimes flourish in this world. But friends, I want to suggest that it is quite the opposite, and here's why. If God is in control of everything, then I can have the confidence that God will not allow me to face temptation greater than I can bear. I can have the confidence that in Him all things truly do have their life and being that no matter what, the end will come about as He has said that it will, that God does not walk away and leave me at the mercy of uncontrolled random or chance events, that is a great comfort. Two years ago, while on a sabbatical and traveling with the family, I learned that basketball player Kobe Bryant and 12 other people died in a helicopter crash. It reminded me of a time many years before we were similarly on a trip down in Escondido and we had learned about a pro golfer who had died. It's been a while since then, but maybe you remember it was a freak plane accident where the plane had lost cabin pressure. 
And so everyone just fell asleep and the plane crashed and there were several believers on board. Would you be tempted like Job's friends to say to the grieving families of those accidents, don't worry, one thing you can be sure of is that God had no part in that accident. Sometimes accidents just happen, so it's okay. That isn't comforting. God is not caught by surprise, nor does he simply not care about trivial things. A sparrow cannot fall to the ground outside of Father's will, but a plane with his people aboard can. And I like what we find in James 4.13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spin there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, confidence in God's sovereignty and all that affects us is critical to our ability to trust him. And it is crucial to our attitude about life. If there is a single event in all the universe that can occur outside of the sovereign will of God, then I would argue we cannot absolutely trust God. If his power is limited and his purpose can be thwarted, we cannot fully trust that his promises are absolutely guaranteed. And that would truly cause us concern. Now before we return to 2 Samuel 24, just listen or look at a few more verses from the scriptures. Lamentations 3 reads, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Ecclesiastes 7, when times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Isaiah 45, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. We should be encouraged by God's sovereignty. Because it says that the things, the circumstances surrounding your lives are not accidents. They may be the work of evil. When we say God's sovereign, it's not to say that there is not such a thing as evil. But that evil is firmly held in check within the mighty hand of our God. All evil is subject to him. Praise the Lord. And evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. He is the Lord of not only the entirety of human history, but also the personal history of every human being. So friends, this is good news. This is great news. A good question, though, that we have to ask as we look at 2 Samuel 24 is, does God promote evil as we see in 2 Samuel 24? Is this, is this God inciting David to sin? Is this saying that God will promote evil? 
Well, what do we know already from what Paul has said in his epistles? He says, heaven forbid, right? God is not the author of evil. And so as we look at this from all these angles, we have to be able in our theology to have a theology that has the scope that is broad enough to say, on the one hand, there is nothing that surprises God. There is no accident that happens outside of his sovereign control, and yet he is not the author of evil. How can both be true? Well, God does not always restrain the wicked in harmful actions of others towards his people, including the actions of Satan or the demonic realm. You know from the book of Genesis, right? Joseph talking to his brothers. This is a, always a common and a famous, important passage where Joseph says, you intended evil. You sold me into slavery. Was that a wrong action? It was a wrong action. Was it sin? It was sin. But Joseph is able to say that while God allowed and decreed that to happen, he had a purpose that was above and beyond what the brothers intended. The brothers just intended to get rid of Joseph. God intended to save the nation of Israel. You intended harm to me, but God, notice how he says it, but God intended it. There was intentionality, there was will, there was purpose behind it to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Right? Through people's sinful intents and actions, God's purpose is accomplished, and we must never conclude that God personally creates or induces sin. James says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Instead, James says, each one instead is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. The fact that people's sinful intents and actions will serve the purpose of God does not make God the author of their sin nor make them any less responsible for their actions. God judges people for the very sins that he uses to carry out his purposes. And so with, kind of with that as a foundation, as we go back to 2 Samuel 24, and we think about this statement in 1 Chronicles that Satan moved David to take the census we, it need not conflict with 2 Samuel 24. Satan must have asked the Lord to incite David to sin. And the Lord permitted it. And because the Lord permitted it, and because nothing can happen outside of his will, he intended it. In 1 Kings 22, God allows a lying spirit to mislead Ahab's false prophets because he planned to judge and remove Ahab from the throne. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 1 tells us that the anger of the Lord, did you see that when we first read it? Look at it there. The anger of the Lord was aroused against whom? Israel. 
So God is going to use this sinful action of David to initiate a series of events that lead to his judgment of the nation. And it's not fully clear why he was angry with them. There are a few possible explanations. One, it could be that God was angry with Israel for the events described in chapter 20. There we learn that after Israel followed Absalom and rebelled against David, that God's anointed king, they followed yet another man named Sheba. 2 Samuel 20 says that Israel proclaimed, we have no share in David, this is what they said, we have no share in David, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tens, O Israel, and we're also told that every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Beeri. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to David. Maybe a second explanation is taken from the words of verse 1 here where we read, again the Lord was angry with Israel. It may be that the May not be the specific rebellion following Sheba that angered the Lord, but a whole string of rebellions, a whole string of disloyalties and faithlessness that God is now judging just like he did in 1 Samuel. Remember back in the first book when he allowed Israel to be defeated by the Philistines. The point is simply that God had ample reason to judge Israel and he allowed Satan to influence David to number the people in a census. And that led to judgment. But I'll tell you, many of us have fashioned an image of a passive God. We see him only as the loving God of Scripture who desires to save the lost and does not delight in the death of sinners. He is the one who blesses and forgives. But then in passages like this, we are reminded of the other side of God. Maybe what I said earlier, you know, when we looked at that first side, slide from Jerry Bridges about the definition of God's wrath and his justice, and I said, but we also have, maybe when I said, but we also have, in some people's mind, it's like the negation of everything before that. But we also have means, well, we don't have that anymore. That's Old Testament God. What we have is a New Testament God. But we don't. We have the one who blesses and forgives. We have the loving, merciful God. But we also are confronted with the fact that we also have a holy and just God. And there is a limit to his long-suffering. And suddenly we're not so comfortable. Perhaps we start recounting some of the things we've done this past week and, and are thankful that unlike Israel or Nadab or Abihu that we talked about in the last month or, or Sodom and Gomorrah that God didn't suddenly decide to judge us. When God's justice falls, some are offended because we think that God owes us perpetual mercy. And when it's not forthcoming, our first response is anger. And it's coupled with the protest, it's not fair. But let me ask this, did, do we not in Adam forfeit even the right to live? 
David writes in the Psalms that we are conceived in sin, we are born in sin, the original sin of Adam, we have, in fact, forfeited all rights to God's mercy. The fact that I draw breath this morning or that you draw breath is an act of divine mercy. God owes us nothing, but we owe Him everything. So in 2 Samuel 24, God's long-suffering had reached an end. And he decided to use the circumstance of David's sin to judge Israel. And the next thing we need to understand is why taking a census could have been a sin. Look at verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. Then you skip a little bit. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Why is this important, David? As common as insightful, he's saying, may the Lord add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. He's pointing out that the number and the strength of David's army and his faithful followers are a result of God's providence and his blessing. Why does David want to number the people? It may be that he wants to count them because he does not trust that he has enough fighting men to go against the enemies of Israel and protect the kingdom. Perhaps after multiple rebellions, having to flee several times for his life in recent battles, David is tired. Could it be that Faithful David, who had stood against Goliath one-on-one, was now doubting the ability to withstand a Philistine attack. Another possibility is that David, having won back the throne, wanted to number his nation and pridefully determine the extent. Perhaps it was for the purpose of taxation and extending the treasury. Whatever the explanation and it may have even been a combination of those, verse 10 reveals that it was based upon sinful motives because once the census was finished and the results are sitting before David, he is struck by his conscience to say, I have sinned. And rather than rejoice over the strength and size of the kingdom that God has grown... Instead, he is convicted by sinful motives, and he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. At the end of the day, we don't know exactly why it was wrong. We can only assume it doesn't matter, or God would have explained it to us. The important thing is that it was wrong, And God ordained this sinful action to give him the opportunity to judge the nation as a whole. And so he sends the prophet Gad to address David over his sin. David had already confessed. He'd asked the Lord's forgiveness. So Gad didn't come like Nathan. Remember, Nathan's a different situation. Nathan had to tell the story, get David involved for David to realize, yeah, you've been caught. Instead, Gad just comes and he says, you have a few choices with regard to judgment. And you can see them in verse 13 there in our passage. 
a little bit later after that. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Okay, that's the first choice. Second choice, will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Third choice, or will there be three days pestilence in your land? Consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Which one would you pick? Some of you may think that David actually picked the third choice. Pestilence or plague, but look closely at verse 14. What he does is actually reject the second choice and then allow God to choose between the other two because David says to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hands of men. What he's really asking is that his judgment come directly from the Lord rather than be mediated through the enemies of Israel. David's really just saying, Lord, you bring it directly to us. Maybe implied in that is the thought that the Lord might be merciful either in the carrying out of the judgment or in the extent. I, I bet you David did not know that the Lord's choice plague for a few days' time would kill 70,000 people. And I say this because verse 17 has David saying, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. And I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So this kind of, some of you may have thought, well, really, David just rejects too because he doesn't want to be the one that, you know, he doesn't want to be the recipient of the judgment. But I think it's more the issue that he wants the, the judgment to come directly from God, thinks that the Lord might be merciful, sees the extent of the judgment, and then... He is saying, that was my fault. Let this be against me. And I think that also implies he didn't realize the full extent of what this was going to be. And I see this tenderheartedness, these sheep. This is not meant to be an insult. This is meant in a moment of tenderness. This is a past shepherd, right, who who gave his life for sheep. These sheep, what have they done? This is my fault. Judge me, my father's house instead. And notice, too, that God had already stayed the angel's hand that that was working destruction. And so God sends Gad once more to David, verses 18 through 20, detail how God instructs David to set up an altar at the threshing floor of a man named Arana. And it's here that the angel had stopped And so we read these next words here, starting with verse 20. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground and said, Why has my lord the king come to a servant? You can imagine all kinds of things going through that man's head, right? 
David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Well, Iran is all on board with that option. Wonderful that this is going to be the, the, the stopping line, right? It would have been fantastic news to you if you had seen what had been happening the last several days. And perhaps that explains verse 22 where it says, Then Iran has said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. May the Lord your God accept you. You need animals? Take my oxen. They're yours. Take these yokes that they were using and the threshing sledges that they were pulling. I don't care. This is wonderful if my family is spared. And some enterprising believers might read the passage and think that if they were David, their thought would be, God really does provide. I go out to give an offering and this person has been motivated to give me all the wood and the animals and the other items that I need. But notice David's response, no, but I will buy them from you for the price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. In David's mind, if the sacrifice doesn't cost him something, it isn't his sacrifice. And what a contrast to our typical way of thinking that we want to serve God only if it doesn't cost us too much. What is your attitude when it comes to serving the Lord? Is it, I'm willing to live like a Christian as long as I don't have to sacrifice or that it's not too painful? Or is it the attitude of David that says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God something that cost me nothing? And I'll be honest with you, the example of David, the widow in the Gospels, Jeremiah, Noah, Abraham, countless others tells us that sacrifice, our sacrifice is often in proportion to our situation. If God has blessed us with much, he expects us to give much, otherwise it isn't a sacrifice. Jesus once said, to whom much is given, much will be required. And friends, when I say that, please don't turn this into a tithing sermon. This is not a tithing sermon. I'm not just talking about money. Though probably for Americans, money is probably the one that hurts the most. When I'm talking about sacrifice, I'm talking about everything from gifts to talents to time to effort, your obedience to God, not just in the context of church, but in your life. In what way or ways has God blessed you? Is it money? Have you been sacrificially giving it away? 
Have you given sacrificially so that you can feel the impact of your sacrifice and have to trust God in replenishing what you've given? Is it your talents? Has God given you talents so that things come easily for you and you don't have to work very hard to accomplish what your employer or your family expects? And so have you developed the sense that I'm going to do just enough to make the A, to get the praise, to accomplish what's expected of me? Or am I sacrificing? Is this costing me something? Is it time? Do you have to give up some hobbies or projects that you really enjoy in order to dedicate sacrificial time to the Lord to make sure that you are leading your family well? To make sure that you are spending time in the Word? To make sure that you are sharing the good news of the kingdom? Do you long to obey God and willingly sacrifice so that you can appreciate God's provision? Do you look forward to the heavenly city more than the building of your own kingdom. And so that's where you find your time and your treasure invested. And if you can't answer with a resounding yes to those questions, let that be a motivation today for some serious self-examination. What are you holding on to? What are you distracted by? What are you so busy with? What could possibly be worth more than God saying to you that the time and investment that you made, whatever it is, was well invested and lasts for eternity? Or will it all be burned up? So 2 Samuel 24, it's a chapter about God's sovereignty, but it's also about his long-suffering, his judgment, and our sacrificial response of gratitude for his mercy. If he is sovereign over the physical areas of our lives, then you can trust that ultimately he will be glorified and the greatest good will come about for you. And I'm confident in the truth of Lamentations 3.31, for men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. Well, our story in 2 Samuel ends here. But I will simply conclude by telling you that the parallel account in First Chronicles tells us that this altar that is built for God, the one that Arana provides the materials for, is the site where David tells Solomon to build the future temple. And as God so often does, out of judgment he brings mercy. And the very spot where God ended the plague against Israel will become the spot where God's presence abides among his people. It's a neat turnaround of events. And it's a great reminder to us that even where we find ourselves in the midst of suffering and trial, it is sometimes but for a moment, he will show compassion.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your unfailing word, your mercies. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things. What confidence we can have that you are the great and powerful God. Confidence that we have that you are the good God who does not author sin, even though you permit it to take place. That you are the omniscient God who knows the future as well as the past, Lord, and whose plan is unfailingly coming to fruition, that you can use the evil of decisions and actions like Joseph's brothers or the inciting of David to either fulfill your purpose in judgment or fulfill your purpose in redemption. Either one, Lord, there is nothing that surprises you, and even the king's heart is like a river in your hands. But Father, more than anything else, we thank you that we are able to respond with gratitude, to sacrifice that which costs us, and to invest ourselves into the long, distant future, because Lord, you are also perfectly loving. And while grief lasts a while, yet great is your unfailing love. So Lord, help us today as we evaluate our lives to think through where we need to sacrifice more. What we need to give up that you may be pleased. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.